If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 12. John 12, we'll pick up a few verses in John 11, but the bulk of our study will be in, in John chapter 12. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to an amazing act of love? Or how do you say thank you to someone who has shown deep love and affection to you? One of the ways that we do that is we give them gifts. <laughs> Maybe you can think of someone that you love, that you have tried to show them in some way your appreciation, your gratitude, your love, the way that they've blessed you by, by giving them some sort of a gift. Uh, throughout history, there have been some extravagant gifts given in, in an effort to express a person's love for someone or their gratitude for another person. I read some articles that talked about massive diamonds that were given to someone's spouse or even private islands and jets and yachts and even a solid gold bathtub. These were all given to express in some way a, a love or a gratitude for another person. And while none of us are able to give gifts on that kind of level, we, we all seek in some way to express our love and our gratitude for the people in our lives that, that bring us a, a deep joy or a deep sense of, of blessing. Last week we read about how Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, much to the amazement of the crowd. It was a sign we saw of, of Jesus' glory, but it was also a personal act of love to some of his friends, to his friends Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters Martha and Mary. And surely they were deeply affected by the love that was shown to them through this sign that Jesus performed that brought their brother back from the dead. And in fact, the scene that opens chapter 12 of John is, a, is of a dinner that was given to honor Jesus, where Mary, we, and in that dinner we see Mary express her love and her gratitude to Jesus through an astonishing and sacrificial act of worship, through a gift uh, in some ways to reveal her gratitude to Christ. And as we look at this act of worship, uh, we discover this truth. Mary reveals to us this, that faith responds to the love and power of Jesus with humble and extravagant worship. We'll take that as our big idea today. Faith, true faith, genuine faith, responds to the love and the power of Jesus with humble and extravagant worship. Which should prompt us to ask, how do we respond to the power and the love of Jesus? We may have not had this specific experience that the family in Bethany had, but for we who are followers of Jesus, we've experienced the resurrection power of Jesus. We've experienced his deep love for us in various and, and countless ways. There are times, of course, where, where Christ delays in our lives or where his ways seem confusing. And yet for all of us, if we step back, we pause, we consider our lives, we see God's grace and kindness like a steady stream flowing to us. So how do we respond to that? Mary teaches us that faith responds to the love and the power of Jesus with humble and extravagant worship. 
As we think about this big idea today, we also are going to notice how the narrative of John, that John is writing is pushing us towards the, the story of, that leads, is pushing the story towards Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. We're going to see how the crowd was responding to him and just how the hour of Jesus' glorification is approaching and eventually comes about. But let's begin by reading our passage in John Uh, starting in chapter 11, verse 55, and we'll read through chapter 12, verse 11. This is what God's word says, beginning in John 11, 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Faith responds to the love and the power of Jesus with humble and extravagant worship. Before we look more closely, though, at Mary's response to the, of, of humble and extravagant worship, we should notice that there are other ways to respond to Jesus ways that reject faith in him and choose to feed our pride and our greed instead. In this passage and the surrounding um, areas, the chief priests and the Pharisees and Judas help us to see that pride and greed are often enemies to a faith that responds to the love of Jesus with humble and extravagant worship. Let's actually begin by thinking about this enemy of pride. Pride. And to do that, we need to go back a little bit into last week's passage. Uh, Immediately, you remember, after the raising of Lazarus, there's this strong reaction to Jesus. We read in John 11, 45 to 54, that many of those who had come to see Martha and Mary and then witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus believed in Jesus. It was such an amazing act of power and of love that some who had rejected him over and over again finally believed after they saw the resurrection of Lazarus. And yet, there were still some who did not believe. And instead of believing, they went to the Pharisees to report what had happened. 
and word of the sign that Jesus had performed and of the crowds now following him uh, made the Pharisees realize that all of their efforts to suppress Jesus and his popularity were actually accomplishing nothing. And they said if they didn't do something soon, then everyone was going to believe in him. So we found that through the council of Caiaphas, they decided it was better for one man to die for the nation than for the whole nation to perish. If we go back to those, those verses, it becomes clear just what the chief priests and the religious leaders were concerned about and what Caiaphas was trying to help them to save. You can see it really clearly in John 11, verses 47 and 48. It says there, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what is their concern? What are they, what are they worried about? They're not concerned with whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah. They, they can't deny his signs that, that he is performing, and they realize also that they can't stop the crowd from following him and believing in him. But they're not worried about the truth of Jesus' words or the truth of Jesus' signs. That's not their concern. Rather, they're worried that if people follow Jesus, it's going to lead to this group of religious leaders and of the Jewish people in general losing their place and their nation. Their place is probably a reference to the temple. And their nation would speak of this unique independence that they had as a people within the Roman Empire. They're concerned about what the Romans are going to do if this revolutionary figure, Jesus, continues to grow in influence. And what they envision occurring is the demise of all that they had built from a political and a national perspective. In other words, said a little bit more simply maybe, if people follow Jesus, they're going to disturb the peace that they currently had that allowed them to exist within the Roman Empire. Notice also that, they're concerned, verse, that they are concerned, verse 48, with the Romans, that they will take away our place and our nation. It's a national concern, but it's also a personal concern for these guys. Why? Because they don't want to lose their positions. They don't want to lose their power and their, their prestige. So what should we call this? Is it simply pride? Is it self-centeredness? Is it a lust for power? Whatever it is, they're worshiping it so passionately that it leads to them refusing to worship Jesus. Power, self-centeredness, a lust for, for a, a pride, whatever it is, it is their God, it is their idol, and they will not take it down and put Jesus in, the play, in their place. Why? Because they love it too much. It's too important to them. They'd rather kill Jesus than do that. And if as Caiaphas says, killing Jesus preserves the thing that they love, then that's what they'll do. In fact, we read in John 12, 10 to 11, they'll kill two people. They'll kill Lazarus too, because people will start following Jesus because of Lazarus. They are ready to kill two men in order to keep their place and their nation, in order to hold on to their power and their pride. Some of this surely has to be a misunderstanding of, of who they, they thought the Messiah would be and the kind of kingdom that he was going to bring in. There, there was the assumption that when the deliverer came, he would simply bolster the political power that Israel already had, that, that he would remove the Romans and reestablish the prominence of their nation and even of, of the temple. But the kingdom that Jesus was introducing was, was upside down from their perspective. It exalted the lowly, 
and humbled the exalted. It was a heavenly kingdom. It wasn't an earthly kingdom. And it was one where Jesus alone was exalted to the place of power. The desire for power and position in the world will keep us from worshiping Jesus. The pride of place, the pride of the, the lust for power keeps us from bowing before Christ. And many who have earthly power reject the message of Jesus. Why? Because they would rather hold on to their pride and their prestige, the things that they have in this world, than give them up in worship for Christ. But only those who give up worldly pride and humbly come to Jesus will find the life that he offers to them. Even for those of us who have come to Christ, there's a danger of trying to couple Jesus with power, whether that's personal power or political power or some other kind of power. We need to remember that the nature of the kingdom that we are a part of and the kind of savior that we serve, namely one who laid aside his power and chose to humble himself all the way to the point of death to save us. We need to remember that Jesus is not the leader of a particular nation. But as John eleven fifty two 52 says, that he has actually come to gather the children of God who are scattered throughout all the nations and make us one, to make us a new kingdom. Jesus is not the leader of any earthly kingdom. He is a savior and he is, he is savior and Lord. He is the God and the king of the universe. And through faith in him, we become a part of his unseen and unshakable kingdom. A kingdom where we lay aside pride, lay aside power, and we trust a savior who was humbled to the point of death so that he could be exalted. Friends, brothers and sisters, beware of pride, beware of the lust for power because they will uproot belief from your life and they will lead you down a path that is actually willing to cast aside Jesus so that you can hold on to those things. After we read about the murderous pride of the Sanhedrin, we find at the end of chapter 11 that Jesus went to a town called Ephraim. It's there uh, in verse 55 of chapter 11. This was nearby, but also far away. He, he withdraws so as to delay his, his death until the hour has come, but he stays nearby so that he can attend the approaching Passover celebration. Uh, verses 55 to 57 describe sort of the buzz around the Passover. It's, it's a lot like what we read back in chapter 7 when his brothers were encouraging him to go up to the feast. You remember people, were, people then and here in this passage are wondering if he's going to, to show up. The opposition of the Pharisees is also a little bit more blatant here, isn't it? Uh, it's such that everyone knows that they're actually seeking to arrest Jesus, and they've sort of uh, organized the crowd to help them find him. If you find him, if he shows up, let us know, because we're looking for him. So it's, it's getting a little bit uh, more intense here. Um, as we enter into chapter 12, we, we can actually begin to start counting the days that lead to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It would seem that this dinner in Bethany happened on, on the Sabbath in the evening, so probably heading into Sunday, but the evening of the Sabbath, as they counted the days, the sun would set, and so it would have been Sunday uh, eventually, but it was that evening, uh, and then the triumphal entry that happens in the next section there, beginning uh, in verse 12, where it says the next day, that would be on the Sunday following this dinner. So if you count it right, that means that this dinner happened one week prior to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, this was all happening in the lead up 
to the Passover celebration of the Jewish people. And it would seem that this was the third Passover that Jesus celebrates here in John's Gospel. So we find on this particular evening, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, this family that we've been coming to know, uh, they decide to host a dinner in Jesus' honor. It could have been a dinner that was put on by the entire town even to, to honor Jesus, but surely uh, it would seem that this family was, was likely the main host. And certainly the recent resurrection of Lazarus was a key motivator for the dinner to honor Christ. As you envision this, you can see Lazarus reclining at the table with Jesus, which is pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? Days or maybe weeks before this, this guy had been in a tomb. <laughs> and now he's there, he's eating, he's talking, he's laughing alongside Jesus as well as all the other guests. As I think about the crowd, I'm, I think they were probably looking at Lazarus almost as much as they were looking at Jesus, just trying to say, well, what's going on with this guy? Uh, Martha is there. She's serving the dinner, which fits with what we read in, 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 in Luke chapter 10. Uh, that's not to say that what Martha is doing is a bad thing. This is, in fact, her, her way of honoring and giving thanks to Jesus, namely by making sure that everything at the dinner is just right. Serving others in a practical, hospitable way is often an act of love done in worship to Jesus. Uh, not only that, but there is part of me that imagines that Lazarus and Martha and, and Mary, uh, that Lazarus and Martha were actually probably a part of Mary's act of worship. Uh, in other words, while Mary is the one who offers her worship most clearly, I, I can't help but think that her brother and her sister may have been involved in, in the planning. In, in the purchasing even of, of, of the ointment that made this act possible, that this was something that they did together, though Mary was the one that actually performed the act. The scene that John describes here, it sure feels like a firsthand witness, doesn't it? It, it floods all of our senses. We might imagine the smell and the taste of this meal that had been prepared we can see all of the guests reclining to eat, as was the custom, such that their heads are facing this table and the, their feet are facing away from the table. You can hear sort of the conversation. There's a buzz in the room. Maybe you can hear the noise of the, of the dishes and the utensils. You can see Martha going around, taking care of things. And then we see Mary arrive with this jar of ointment or perfume. It's about 11 ounces in size. And as she opens that jar, we can maybe begin to smell this beautiful scent of perfume. And slowly it overtakes the smell of all of the food. It, it fills the room, John says, almost as if he is remembering that smell as he writes these words. And slowly the conversation, the, the buzz in the room dies down, and everyone's watching Mary because she's opened up this jar of ointment. And now she's pouring, not just a little bit, she's pouring the entire contents onto Jesus' feet. And then in the midst of that, we hear maybe some gasps or some murmurs because Mary has started to undo her hair, which is a shameful thing to be done in public in these ancient cultures. And not only that, but she takes her hair that is now let down and starts to wipe the ointment off of Jesus' feet with her hair. It's an amazing scene, isn't it? You start to take in all of the sights and the, the smells and the sounds of this room, and then we hear another sound. 
It's a voice. It's the voice of Judas, <laughs> one of the disciples. This isn't a thought that he has to himself. It's something he says out loud. He's identified by John here as he who was about to betray him. <laughs> you remember that, that Mary here is known forever by this act of worship that we're reading about. And here Judas is labeled and remembered by the act of betrayal that he is, is going to be known for forever. Judas breaks the holiness of this moment to complain. And he's upset. Why is he upset? He's upset that this perfume wasn't sold so that the money could be given to the poor. You can almost hear him say it. Why didn't we sell this to get money for the poor? <laughs> it was an afterthought because in actuality, he's, he's probably humming the B.B. King song that says, help the poor, help poor me. Because <laughs> he's not looking to give the money to the poor. He wants to take it. He wants to take it for himself. Because John says he was a thief and he used to take the money from the, the common purse that the disciples have. Can you imagine? Paul, uh, pause here and, and notice the, the second enemy then of true worship. We talked about pride. Think about greed. Greed is an enemy of true worship. We could even just say money, but more broadly we find that a, a longing for worldly wealth of any kind draws our hearts away from Jesus. Could we say that this, too, is a misunderstanding of the kind of kingdom that Jesus has come to establish? How do we measure the power of kingdoms in this world? Well, a lot of times we do it by the money that they have. The wealth of a nation is a symbol of their power and their prestige. And we do that not only with nations, but also with individuals. People with money have, have influence and are envied throughout society. It's, it's hard not to envy the wealthy, isn't it? It's hard not to look at the wealthy and desire to participate in their lives of apparent ease and opulence. I, we covet their homes. We covet their cars. We would love to have the chance to just travel wherever our hearts desire, to eat at any restaurant in town. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, isn't it? And the desire for money can lead us to worship it more than we worship Christ. We might begin to sacrifice our integrity to the God of money, telling lies so that we can get a little bit richer. We might neglect our family or our faith even for the sake of greater wealth. We could become like Judas and start blatantly stealing for our own satisfaction. Greed and, and the love of money ultimately are, are self-centered because we show disregard for others so that we can have the comfort and the ease that we desire but can, it can lead us to worshiping God's gifts rather than, than God. In fact, we become gods to ourselves because we sense that we can provide all that we need. And suddenly we imagine that, that we don't need God. Our, our priorities get all, all out of whack and suddenly we, we sell our souls for 30 pieces of silver like Judas. Again, friends, beware of the pitfalls of money and greed. They can easily steer us away from the priorities of God's kingdom, where Jesus says that the poor are the ones who are blessed. Greed and riches can deceive us so that we see acts of true worship as foolishness rather than beautiful. I love that in this moment, Jesus steps in immediately to defend Mary. It's, it's as if 
Judas's words are not even, it's like he hasn't even finished the sentence before Jesus steps in. Because as I look at what Mary's doing, she's taking a deep risk, isn't she? She's, she's done something bold to honor Jesus. I'm sure there were some nerves before she walked into that room. And if Judas's words are allowed to hang in the air for too long, she's going to start to believe them, right? But Jesus won't let her second guess this act of devotion. So he jumps in, and what's he say to Judas? Leave her alone. <laughs> it's a bold word from Jesus. Leave her alone, Judas. This act of worship Jesus shows us is not something to critique. Rather, it's something to emulate. It's something to learn from. So think about the nature of it. I just want to point out two, two characteristics of it, though they kind of blossom into some others. The first is that it's humble. It is humble worship. The commentator Bruce Milne says of Mary that she is always at Jesus' feet. Think about this. In Luke 10, she's at Jesus' feet. She's learning from him. In John 11, when Jesus arrives in town, she falls at his feet and asks him where he was when her brother died. And here, she is at his feet, anointing him with oil. Not only that, but she also uses her hair like a rag to wipe Jesus' feet. This is a woman who has seen the glory of Jesus and rightly responds with reverent awe and worship. Jesus is her friend. Remember, we know that Mary knows how much Jesus loves her. But Mary also sees that he is the Messiah and he is the Son of God who is exalted above her. Mary reminds us very simply that it's right and it's good to kneel before God, to kneel in prayer. Because as we kneel, we remember that while God certainly loves us, while God most definitely is our friend, he is also above us and he is worthy of our worship such that we should bow at his feet. He's the creator, he's the sustainer of life, he is our savior, he is our Lord, and we should be humbled before his presence, just like Isaiah, who in seeing the glory of God also saw the uncleanness of his own life and the lives of the people around him. As we think about this humility, there's an aspect of it where there's a self-forgetfulness in Mary's worship, a, a humility that forgets herself it seems to be behind this, this humble worship in some way. She's not concerned with how she is perceived by anyone other than Jesus. And, and there are caveats that can be made, but I think we should approach our worship to Jesus with a kind of, of self-forgetfulness that is not concerned with the opinions of others. We should led, be led by God's word and by God's spirit such that we come to him in prayer or in song, or in any, any other form of worship. And as we do, we're only concerned that he is honored and that he is exalted as he should be and as he leads us to. Self-forgetfulness. Self, this self-forgetfulness would, would seem also to be uh, found in the fact that Mary's worship was extravagant. It was humble, but second, it was, an, it was extravagant. There's no reason to, to doubt Judas's assessment of how much this ointment cost, which means that it cost nearly an entire year's wages. A denarii was one day's wages, so 300 denarii would be 300 days wages. So almost a year's wages, very close to it, which means it would be ten, tens of thousands of dollars in today's money. 
how did they have this, this ointment? You want to know what, what was going on in the household of, Larry, uh, of Lazarus and, and Martha and, and Mary. But they have this ointment that was worth so much money, and Mary pours every last drop of it on the feet of Jesus. I have three bottles of cologne. <laughs> Two of them were gifts from when I was in high school. The third I got at a GFC white elephant gift exchange. <laughs> and you know what? I have all three. Why? Because cologne is, first of all, expensive, and because you only use a little bit of it at a time, right? I thought, wouldn't it be funny if I just took one of those bottles and just dumped it on me today as some sort of strange illustration, but that seems like a really bad idea. But think about it. We, perfume and, and these kinds of things, they're, they're expensive, and therefore we use very little of them. Well, this perfume here, this perfume is beyond expensive, right? Nobody, I hope nobody, I imagine that nobody in this room owns a bottle of perfume that's worth an entire year's wages. This is beyond expensive, and Mary doesn't just use a little bit. She uses every last drop of it in worship to Jesus. Imagine she had probably, she thought about this, she prayed about it, probably talked about it with her brother and her sister, and thought about how can we honor Jesus, not only as the one who had raised her brother, but also as the Messiah that she believed him to be. And I imagine as she went through all of the options, everything just seemed too small. Everything was just too cheap. She lands on this idea as a way of communicating the worth of Jesus and her willingness to give all that she had to him in worship. The extravagance assumes that this gift was costly for Mary to give. So again, the extravagance also shows us as a part that it's, it's costly. Her, her family may have been wealthy, but this has got to be a sacrifice still, right? Whether it was a family heirloom that was passed down that, that they then used, that would cost something. Or if they went out and bought it that week to honor Jesus, that would be costly for them. And it reminds us, it reminds me of the, the story of David at the end of 2 Samuel. Remember, he's going to make a, a sacrifice to avert a plague that his pride had caused. And he arrives at the, the appointed place of this sacrifice. And he says that he wants to buy this location from the man who owns it. And the owner of, of this threshing floor says to, to David, I will give it to you, David. I'll give you this, this piece of land, and I'll give you the oxen even for the, the burnt offering. And David responds like this. He says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Can, can you almost hear Mary say that? I'm not going to offer my worship to Jesus in something that costs me nothing. Let's be honest, sometimes the worship that we offer the Lord is an afterthought. Or it, it comes from the overflow of what we have. It doesn't cost us much. But Mary and David teach us that extravagant worship to Jesus is inherently costly. Now, I think this certainly could be applied to our money, couldn't it? And certainly a way to avoid uh, greed and the love of money that Judas displays is to give away money and to give away possessions and to do so sacrificially in a way that, that hurts a little bit. We not, might even do what Judas pretended that he wanted to do, namely we can give sacrificially to the poor. 
That might sound a little confusing in light of what Jesus says. Remember, he says, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What's the idea behind that rebuke? I think that rebuke that Jesus is offering to Judas has to do with the unique circumstances of the moment that Mary is in. She had insight, and she saw in some way that this anointing was for Christ's burial. But, but she, saw that, she saw that Jesus was not always going to be present with them for, for her to offer this, this kind of ointment. Therefore, now is the time to act. Now is the time to offer this specific kind of worship. But in this age, we await the arrival of Jesus so that one day we too, like Mary, might be able to worship him in some sort of a tangible way like this. Won't that be an amazing experience to see the risen Christ and to worship him even as Mary does in, in some sort of almost physical way of giving him worship. But even now, as, as we wait for his physical presence, we know that the poor are still with us, as Jesus says. Therefore, we can, we can give to the poor as worship to Jesus, knowing that a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name is the same as giving that cup of cold water to Jesus himself. Our acts of love and generosity done to others for, for God's glory are done to him and they exalt him. And we make, when we make sacrifices to bless others, we can do it in a way that worships Christ. Beyond our money, we could also think about our time or our abilities as worship to Jesus, because worship is, is not relegated to Sunday mornings, right? We're reminded to offer our entire selves in worship to Christ. We don't give a tithe of our time we don't give a tithe of our energy. We don't give a tithe of our devotion. We don't even give a tithe of our money. Rather, we offer up all that we are as a living sacrifice to Christ. Why? Paul says that's reasonable service. He says it just makes sense. It makes sense to give in extravagant and costly ways to a Savior who has saved us at the cost of his life. Now, if you're not in Christ, there's absolutely no reason, zero reason for you to humbly and extravagantly worship Jesus in these ways. And if you do, you'll probably think of them as some means of purchasing your salvation through good works. But that's not what worship is. It's not, it's not what Mary is doing, nor is it what the Christian does. Rather, gratitude and thanksgiving lead us down this path of humble and sacrificial worship. We were recently, Rob, Riddy, Rob, Rob Witte was with us, and he took us to these words in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, I think they help us understand what Mary was thinking and doing. This is what it says in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful, he says. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Think about that. Let me read it again and just think about Mary's act of worship here. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We worship God out of gratitude because we understand the kind of kingdom that he has given to us. It's not the kind of kingdom where we need to pridefully jockey for position. It's not the kind of kingdom that makes us wealthy in some sort of earthly way. Rather, it is a heavenly and unshakable kingdom. 
Therefore, we offer to God acceptable worship, worship that is extravagant and even costly and that costs us our entire lives. And we do it with reverence and awe, with humility, knowing that God is our friend, but also that he is a consuming fire. As we look at this passage, brothers and sisters, beware of the pride and of, of pride and of greed, because they will snuff out the flames of true worship that are in our hearts. But we can follow, we can follow Mary's example. And through faith, out of gratitude for a Savior who has given us the hope of resurrection and life, we can offer him humble and extravagant worship. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and then I will pray for us. Father, we confess together that we can be distracted by power and position in this world. We can be distracted by money and material possessions such that we worship these things above you. So we ask that you would forgive us, Lord, and help us to not follow the path of the Pharisees and the chief priests, to not follow the path of Judas, but to follow the path of Mary that humbly and extravagantly worships you. Lord, would you draw to our minds ways that we can devote ourselves to you in, in humility and in self-forgetfulness. Lord, teach us how to worship you as you lead us to, on our knees and not concerned about the opinions of others, but only concerned about giving you the worship you deserve. Lord, would you teach us how to worship you in extravagant ways, in costly ways, Lord, that our lives would be living sacrifices offered to you, knowing, Lord, that all that we have is from you, Lord, that we would give ourselves out of gratitude for what Christ has done, not as a means of earning our salvation, but as a recognition of all that you have done for us and as a means of seeking to see you glorified in our lives and in our world until you come. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.